Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. I just, I want to, I just want to recognize my colleague, Pastor Philip did a wonderful job with the children's story. After that, I feel like we can all go home and have lunch and call it a day. But we're going to make sure you, got your, you get your money's worth this Sabbath. Forward, the light brigade. Oh, that doesn't really work. So church, can, can we do something? Sorry, can we do something? Can, can you give me a mulligan? Can we start over? Because for the next 25 minutes, I want your complete and total attention. And I know that there's two questions that are burning in your mind, and so I think we just need to let the cat out of the bag before we start. Question number one, no, Randy is not preaching today. <laughs> Sorry. You get me. Question number two. Yes, I am wearing socks. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's, uh, let's go back to our regularly scheduled programming. Forward the light brigade. Not a man was dismayed. Though the soldier knew... Someone had blundered. It was not for them to seek reply. It was not for them to wonder why. It was but for them to do and die. Lynn and I have been thinking over the past couple of months what it means now that we're celebrating 20 years together. And when I met Linda, Linda was actually talking to someone... Oh, you're so kind. It's been my pleasure. So when we started dating, Linda was actually talking to someone else. I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Sorry, honey. And this other person was, um, was taller than I am. And so we, we both had interviews with my in-laws, and the first question they asked him was, well, what are you studying? And he said, well, I'm going to be a dentist. And then they looked at me, and they said, what are you studying? And I said, well, um, I'm going to be a pastor. And that was two strikes against me. And this guy who she was kind of talking to was objectively obnoxious. You know the kind of person. The one that's always trying to one-up the other. 
That was him. And so I, I thought, I, I need a way to figure out how to level the playing field, and so I learned poetry. Poetry is the great equalizer. Now, one of my favorite poets is Alfred Lord Tennyson, and one of his most famous poems is The Charge of the Light Cavalry, which I just recited for you. That's the second stanza of the poem. Now, Tennyson writes this poem in 1854 in the height and during the apex of the Crimean War. And what is actually happening is the Russian Empire has captured several guns from the British, and so now this light cavalry is sent up to recapture those guns before they are taken away. But through some confusion, instead of engaging the Russians as they are retreating, the soldiers get sent right into the heart of the Russians' defense line. It's rumored that the soldiers, upon seeing the 600 people on horseback, thought that, well, they, they must be mad. It was an ill-fated, ill-advised, though courageous assault with devastating casualties as the Russians began to launch volley after volley of artillery fire. It's the last line in that stance that really got me to thinking this week. It is not for us to seek reply. It is not for us to wonder why. It is but for us to do and die. I've been thinking about survival. You know, maybe it's the season of life I'm in as my kids are getting older, or maybe it's the fact that we are surrounded by death, particularly as we are living in the middle of this very difficult time. I've been thinking about survival a lot. I've been wondering, what is it that dwells deep inside us that refuses to give up, that faces death-defying odds with optimism, that takes pride in leveling the playing field, that doesn't ask questions, we simply trudge and move on. I've been thinking about survival and wondering who can allow me to answer the question, what do I need to do in order to develop a foolproof faith that is destined to survive? Perhaps we can ask Stephen Callahan. Stephen is an engineer. He's also an experienced sailor. And January 29th, 1982, he decided to launch in his... Boat, the Napoleon Solo, a 21-foot ship, and embark on a journey across the Atlantic from the island of El Hierro in the Canaries all the way to the Caribbean. Now, something happened during the night, and Callahan's boat was hit by something, probably a whale, and so the Napoleon Solo began to take on water. At that moment, a decision needed to be made. And so Steve abandoned ship and decided to climb aboard the Avalon, a six-person inflatable life raft. Now, because of the 
course he had charted, it was quickly decided by him that there were no ships in that particular lane. And so if he was going to survive, he was going to have to find a way to sail and navigate for 1,800 miles, clear across the Atlantic, only equipped with meager provisions and very little water. And after 76 days, a group of fishermen off the island of Guadalupe saw what appeared to be a flock of seagulls floating above a makeshift raft. On top of the raft, an emaciated, ghoulish man appeared. Callahan had lost around 60 pounds during the ordeal. He had managed to find a way to do the impossible. How did he survive? Well, perhaps we don't only need to ask Callahan. Perhaps we can ask one of the characters that inhabits Scripture. A man with whom I have, to be frank, very little in common with. He is the personification of the American ideals of self-reliance, outdoorsman ability, and ruggedness. Like I said, he has very little in common with me. I was thinking about this this week, and I asked Linda to rate me on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of my ruggedness. <laughs> really, guys? Y'all are laughing? David, you're laughing at me? What would you guys rate me? A, a, I got a zero up here. Five. Mickey asked, thank you. Linda rated me a three. And then I said, okay, Linda, if I'm a three, then what's John the Baptist? And she said, oh, that man is a solid 10. It's true. I mean, picture how he is described in the Gospel of Matthew for a second. Matthew chapter 3 describes him as clothed in camel hair. Long beard, luscious locks, eating locusts. John was on a paleo diet before paleo was in vogue. <laughs> Living and breathing with the, stair, with the stars as his cover and the desert has his bed, and he's preaching. He's preaching a message. Now, Matthew goes to great lengths to link John and Jesus, like no other gospel writer does. Both John and Jesus have ministries that are happening in the backwater provinces of Galilee and the Transjordan. When John was born, an angel also goes to Elizabeth in order to let her know that she is with child. When Mary encounters Elizabeth, the baby begins to leap in her belly, thus cementing this connection between the two of them. 
Furthermore, it shouldn't surprise you that John's death described later on in the gospel as he is beheaded at the fortress Machaerus is supposed to be a foretelling of what is going to happen to Jesus in his passion narrative. Like we said, there are no other two characters throughout Scripture that are thus linked. And so perhaps, perhaps it would serve us well to this afternoon ask John, what do we need to do in order to develop a faith that will survive? If you have a Bible, can you turn it with me and open it to the gospel according to Matthew, the 11th chapter? As you're thumbing through, you're going to find that this particular passage begins in verse 1 with the words, after Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples. Now, this isn't the first time that that particular phrase appears in the gospel. You find it once before in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. In this section, Jesus has just finished delivering the Sermon on the Mount. He then embarks on a four-chapter excursion to develop his mission, and it is at the end of Christ's mission that we have our text for today, Matthew chapter 11. But that same phrase will appear another three times throughout his gospel. In chapter 13, it will present himself as Jesus begins to instruct and concludes his telling of parables that have to do with the reign of the Messiah. Again, chapter 19 will contain that phrase as Jesus is finishing the description of the community that he has called together. And one last time in verse 26, as Jesus finishes his comments on eschatology and judgment. I want to just meander through an alley for a second and tell you that the first four times that this phrase appear, it has to do with the formation of God's people. The fifth time has to do with judgment. It's almost as if Matthew, knowing that he is writing to a Hebrew audience, is realizing and trying to make links between Jesus' ministry and the five sections that it contains and the history of the people of Israel throughout the five books of Moses. But in those first four occurrences, as we are building a community, it would seem to indicate that judgment is reserved for the inside community. Now, as I said, we're just meandering through this alley, but pause and think with me for a moment. What would happen if judgment was something that we reserved for those of us that are insiders, rather than utilizing it as an evangelistic tool? But I digress. Let's go back to the text. Matthew chapter 11 continues with a question. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, I want you to just capture the tinge of desperation in John's words. 
We know in chapter 11 that John is sending his disciples because he has been imprisoned. He has been imprisoned because he has preached a sermon that actually has begun to critique the ruler of Judea who, upon going and visiting his brother in Rome, has returned with his sister-in-law and has now married her. John is worried. It's almost as if John is saying, hey, Jesus, um, well, I bet the farm on the fact that you're the Messiah. Could you please give us some confirmation? Or, well, should I start looking for someone else? Now, I want, as you hear the tinge of desperation, to also alert you to the fact that there are some serious implications with the question that John is asking. I mean, after all, he begins his sermon in chapter 3 with these words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that phrase that in your Bibles is translated as is at hand is cast in the present perfect tense, which means that a more appropriate translation of John's sermon title is the kingdom of heaven is here. So you just picture the scene. John is preaching. He sees Jesus across the Jordan, and he says, Ah, the kingdom of heaven is here, embodied in Jesus. And now he's in prison. So what are the implications that you ought to be alerted to? Well, what John is really asking is, if the kingdom is heaven, if heaven is here, then what am I doing in prison? Have you ever asked that question? If God is a good and just judge, then why do the wicked prosper? If Jesus is the divine doctor, then what am I doing in this hospital bed, grappling with this devastating medical prognosis? If he is the faithful father, then how come my parents have abandoned me? If he is the obedient son, then why do my children not want to have anything to do with me? If he is the prince of peace, then why has my home become a battle place? I know that, that you're tempted to discard John, to dismiss this feverish ranting. After all, John, everybody has a crisis of faith here and there. Can I invite you this afternoon to be gentle with John? He's going through a lot of stress. And something happens when you're stressed. My friend Kim Rosson can tell you better than I can because she's in the medical field. So let me see if I get this right. You can give me thumbs up if I get it right. When you are stressed, your body begins to produce a hormone, a hormone called cortisol. Cortisol gets dumped into your blood. Once cortisol is dumped into your blood, it hijacks your prefrontal cortex. 
Your prefrontal cortex is the place where decisions are made and perceptions are constructed. And so when you have stress, you develop what sociologist Charles Perrault describes as tunnel vision. You only focus on one thing. Now, that's helpful, but what happens when the thing that we are focusing on is the wrong thing? Once again, Perot talks about this as mental models. And what's a mental model? A mental model is the way in which we as human beings navigate an ever more complex world. I know that sounds like a bunch of jumble. So let me give you an example as a case in point, okay? If you're as disorganized as I am, undoubtedly at some point in your life you've lost a book. So let's imagine for this experiment that I've last lost my copy of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Now I know that my copy is a hardcover blue book. That's my mental model. And so what's going to happen is my eyes are going to focus on every single book that is blue in my house. Here's the problem. If the mental model, if the reality changes and the mental model doesn't adapt, I'm lost. What happens if Melville's book is red instead of blue? Chances are I will miss it even if the book is in front of me with the title on the cover. So how do we develop a faith that survives? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to remain cool. That's, that's right, we need to remain cool. Now, this particular phrase is now prevalent in our lingo, but it only became widely used in the 1940s. You see, jazz musicians used, described their music as cool in order to contrast it with the hot tunes and rhythms of bebop, which was, well, it was the dominating music genre at the time. They knew that their music needed to be cool because they needed to turn fear into focus. Now, how were they going to do that if they were enraged and stressed, victims of a social arrangement steeped in racism? Well, they remained cool. I think it's safe to say that John has lost his cool. And he's lost his cool because he is operating from a particular mental model. You see it right there in Matthew's gospel in the third chapter. It's part and parcel of his sermon. John is expecting a swashbuckling savior, sword in hand, to come in, confront sinners, toppling a political system, reshaping power, sifting wheat from shaft and throwing the unrighteous into an oven to burn like straw. He is waiting for a Messiah to come with an axe in one hand and a shovel in the other, and instead he gets Jesus. And the mental model doesn't compute. And he can't focus. I'm going to do something really risky with you this afternoon. 
I'm going to ask you for a moment to close your Bibles and put down your phones and give me your complete and utter focus. All right. I believe that there is no limit to what the Loma Linda University Church can achieve if we all work together. So I'm going to play a video for you. Here's what we have to do as a team. We've got to focus on the people in the video wearing a white shirt. And what I need you to do is I need to, you to laser focus on them and then count the number of times they pass each other the basketball in the video. And we're going to see if together we can come up with the correct answer. Are you ready? I still see some phones and Bibles out. Make plans for lunch later. Let's focus. Okay, how, how many passes? Are you saying that for real, or is it because you guys saw the answer on, on the screen? All right, be honest with you. How many of you saw the moonwalking bear? I see some of you saying, what bear? <laughs> Harvard University ran this study and discovered that 57% of us can't see the bear because we're focused on the wrong thing. And that's the danger of mental models, isn't it? We are so focused on the way that we think things ought to work out that we fail to realize what God is doing in our lives. So how do we remain attuned? Well, we said the first thing that we need to do is we need to remain cool. But being cool is not enough. We also need to be here now. You need to be here now. And what that means is you need to let go of these mental models that, were, that will translate you in time and space to another region. You know, John is in prison, but in his mind, he's thinking about the reign of the Messiah. What's going to happen when Jesus throws the Romans into the sea? And Jesus is telling him, John, be here now. Because if you are here now, you can make a plan. And let's face it, luck always favors the prepared. So how does Jesus attempt to drag John away, I'm not moonwalking, away from his mental models and into the present? Let's keep reading, shall we? Matthew chapter 11. Jesus replied, verse 4, go back. And report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Did you catch that? 
Jesus is saying, come and see. Step into the present. Because he realizes that the third step in developing a faith that, is, that is, will survive is to be in the present. You have to accept reality. You know, too often we spend our energy, our time, our prayers, our petitions, our hopes, and our dreams denying our reality. And Jesus is telling John, it's time for you to face reality. I am not the swashbuckling Savior. I am your gentle friend. You guys are expecting a messianic age of healing. I'm instead going to walk around the backwater towns in Galilee and touch people. If you really want to find the Messiah, you need to ask yourself the question, who among us is dispossessed? Who among us is lonely? Who among us is tired, hopeless, faithless? Chances are, once you identify them, you'll find Jesus eating, drinking, and living side by side with this group of people. But in order to do that, you've got to let go of your mental models. You know what I find fascinating about this particular passage? Read it again with me. The blind see, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And it's almost as Jesus is telling John, I know you're a great preacher, I know you preach a lot of sermons, but there's another sermon that I'd like to point you to, Isaiah 33. It reads that in the Messianic age, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the lame will leap like deers. And those who are mute will sing for joy. John realized that there is another way of experiencing and living reality. But then there's something really interesting that happens. You have this otherworldly display of power. And side by side, you have the gospel being preached. So a bunch of miracles are happening, and for in Matthew's economy, side by side, equally valuable of, as these miracles is the fact that the gospel is being preached. Did you notice that? Here's what Matthew's trying to say. It is important for life to be given to the dead, but it is equally important to teach the living how to live. And you can only do that when you accept reality. But that takes courage, church. Man, it takes courage. You know why it takes courage? Because it requires that we abandon the plan. So not only are we called to remain cool, not only are we called to be here and now, to be in the here and now, not only are we called to accept reality, but now we're being called to abandon the plan. Now, honestly, every single person that met Jesus had a plan. Judas had a plan. He wanted Jesus to overthrow the Romans. 
John and James, they had a plan. They wanted to sit on either side of Christ. John, John had a plan. Jesus was going to come and tear out the, the tree from, and the root and call everyone a brood of vipers. But what happens when God doesn't quite live up to our plans? Well, maybe it's time to abandon the plan. And how do I abandon the plan? Let's keep reading. Verse 6. And blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Ooh, that hurts. That's Jesus cutting to the core. Because mental models not only affect the way we see the world, mental models affect the way we see each other. Most disagreements that happen, whether with people whom we work with, or people who we live with, happen because we are operating from different mental models, don't they? So Jesus says, oh, by the way, blessed is the one who does not take offense on account of me. That's an interesting way to put it. My NIV translates that phrase as the one who does not take offense. The original language, though, uses a different word. It's a word that you should recognize. So I'm going to break my unsaid rule, and I'm actually going to use some Greek. Because the word that in your Bible appears as blessed is the one who does not take offense could be, could be read as blessed is the one who does not scandalizo me. And that word should sound familiar to you because that is where we get our word scandal from. So what Jesus is telling John is when your mental models shift, blessed is the one who isn't scandalized by what I'm doing. And let's face it, church, us religious people, we love our scandals. I mean, we see people out there doing things different, and we get scandalized. We see people expressing faith in a way that we don't understand, and what's our first reaction? Scandal. We disagree with someone on their theological position on any wide range of issues, and what do we do? Righteous indignation. Mm. You know who doesn't get scandalized? Kids. When's the last time you see, you've seen a child who's embarrassed? And maybe that's why Jesus is going to say in Matthew 18 that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. A few years ago, there was a study. I was trying to answer the same questions we've been grappling with this afternoon. You know, the study had to do with what is it inside of us that causes us to survive? 
So they looked at critical situations, situations that were desperate, and then they said, what do the people that survived have in common? And they realized that there was one group of people that scored high and above everyone else when it came to survival rates. Now, how many of you think that that was experienced hikers? Maybe it's because we don't have experienced hikers here. Okay, uh, how many of you think it was people with survival training? One person. How many of you think it was people with military training? How many of you don't know what to think and just want the answer? <laughs> the people that scored, the group of people that scored better than anyone else when it came to survival rates were children six years and younger. And that threw researchers for a loop. And then they realized that the reason why children fared so much better is because children six years and younger don't have the capacity to forge mental models. They take reality in as it comes. So what else do you need to do? Well, simply stated, you need to be curious. Curiosity doesn't always kill the cat. A few, a few months ago, Linda and I were at the beach. And you know my, my Kai, he's rambunctious, he's running around. And... Um, I turn and I have this vision of Linda preparing me a sandwich. And she looks so beautiful that I just start reciting poetry to her. <laughs> and she is so moved by my command of the English language that she looks straight back at me and she says, where's your son? <laughs> because he's my son when he misbehaves. And I look and I say, oh, I don't know. Now, I don't know much, but I know that that's not the way you want to answer your wife when you've lost one of her children. <laughs> so now I've been thrown into a state of panic. I'm not cool. I'm not taking reality in. I'm not in the here and now. I'm not present. I'm, I'm not curious. I'm angry. I'm operating under a mental model of, oh my gosh, Linda's going to kill me. And so I began to frantically search. Cortisol has hijacked my body. I am running around the beach. I'm going into the ocean. I'm looking in every nook and cranny. And finally, I see him by himself playing with seaweed. So I walk up to him, and scandalized, I say, how dare you get lost? How dare you do this to your mother and me? And he looks back at me, and he says, Daddy, I wasn't lost. I was here.
kids do better than we do because they don't get scandalized. My kaiven is bold and he's humble. He has a beginner's mindset. And so the last thing that we need to do in order to develop a faith that is survival proof is to be bold and to be humble. To remember that a beginner's mindset offers many possibilities. But the question still lingers in the air. You know, it's thick. Because it ha the way we answer it has some implications. Am I going to love and follow God when God doesn't answer my prayers in the way that I think they need to be answered? Am I going to love and follow God when he doesn't rescue me at the precise time I think I need to be rescued? Am I going to love and follow God when my expectations, because let's face it, John had a lot of expectations, and the truth of the matter is our expectations shape our perceptions. Am I going to follow and love God when my expectations and my desires no longer coincide with the divine plan? And then the shiver runs through my spine. Because if my answer to that question is no, then I need to face the reality that perhaps I should look for another. Maybe I need to change my membership to the church of consumerism, egoism, a church that is propped up with the liturgies that are self-serving and self-centered. My faith fails me a lot. Now I'm going to be honest. There are times when the situation that I'm going through is so devastating that my faith fails. You know what the good news is? The nugget I take home from this passage? It's that a failure of faith does not disqualify you. A failure of faith does not disqualify you because you serve a God who is ever faithful. You see, I realized that. And then I came across the most wonderful story. In Australia, the Aborigines, the Aborigines are able to navigate without a compass and without a map. Now, I find that fascinating because I can't navigate hold of crooks with a compass and with a map. And so I begin to ask myself, well, how do they do it? And the answer to that question is song lines. Now you might be wondering, what's a song line? Well, from the moment an Aborigine is born in Australia, their parents sing songs to them. Songs about the earth, sounds about the rock, sounds about the fork in the road, 
songs about the moon and the stars, songs about the tree and the way markers. These songs coalesce together to form an intricate grid. And if you know the song, you're never lost. If you know the song, you can always go home. And the song is this. It is not for us to seek reply. It is not for us to wonder why. It is but for us to do his will. It is but for us to die to self. Pray with me. We want to survive. But the way in which we perceive the world, Lord, sometimes prevents us. We want to hear the song and move through the grid. But sometimes our perceptions fail us. We want to believe, O oh Lord. But sometimes we need to pray, help us in our unbelief. We want to be faithful. But even when we're not faithful, even when we fail, we thank you for your faithfulness. For you did, and you died. And so we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.